This episode of The Women references suicide. Please take care while listening. I decided to only take hate seriously from the people I would take love seriously, which is people I would celebrate Christmas with. And everybody else can just like go back to their little cabin in the woods. And I think it's the same with like self-confidence. You don't get it for free. Most people don't. So in order to get it, I think you have to fake it. Once you fake it, you see how well it works and you sort of develop a natural sense of self-confidence. Um, I always, I can't emphasize this enough that you can't get rid of fears unless you go through them. Welcome to The Women, a production of iHeartRadio and myself, your host, Rose Reed. Every episode, I'll sit down with one person who has journeyed to do the extraordinary. And on this episode, I'm speaking with Ronja van Roon. And uh, am I saying your name right, Ronja van Roon? It's very hard to pronounce. You're American. You literally stand no chance. Um, <laughs> it is Ronja von Rönne, but uh, I do forgive you. Ronja von Ronja. Oh, <laughs> Ronja von Rani. Give your kids names they can spell out internationally. Do your kids a favor. We're working on a global scale here. Don't make it too hard on us. <laughs> Ronia is a journalist, a writer, and she mixes reporting, poetry, and quips to comment on the world at large and to illustrate the journey of the human experience, her experience. And in English, I write and I comment and sometimes I spread hate and then sometimes I get hate and uh, sometimes I love it and sometimes I hate it. And other than that, I really like my bed. Ronia blogs, and she has a regular column. Today is unfortunately bad. And she's been published in major publications in Germany. Her first novel is called We Are Coming, and she hosts a TV show called Street Philosophy. She became a household name in Berlin the day her article, which roughly translates to Feminism Disgusts Me, was published. And she was thrust into controversy. They went out solo online. With that, uh, why feminism disgusts me headline, which was not mine, not my choice of words. And they just put that up there and I was like, you have to change it. And then I think at some point they did, but it was too late. Of course, the outrage was there. Ronia has used the new platform with grace and humor. She began to write more about herself and her own experience and rejected this binary and harsh cancel culture by asserting herself and her opinions as dynamic and ever-changing. I was introduced to Ronya's writing through a friend, and I'm intrigued by this league of writers in this new age. Reporting on the world has often slipped into reporting on the living experience of the writers themselves. And Ronya is an example of someone who has used controversy as a means to ask, in a world where everything is shareable and there's daily comments, do we not have the space for more self-discovery and more questions? I sat down with Ronja in Berlin, and as we sit across from each other in stools, we discuss the balancing act, one of how one sits on stools, and the other how one manages the public persona of writing in a new age. I'm going to steal someone else's quote about you. Ronja von Ron creates new pictures for old problems. Well, I haven't heard that one. I remember it now. <laughs> so an another way that I would talk about your writing, which has so much like wit and humor and deadpan kind of take is I think of it as like a mix of Lena Dunham girls humor and like Sylvia Plath poetry. That is beautiful. And I will accept that <laughs> gladly. <laughs> um, I really wanted to start by, um, I think it's Kismet, but last night where I'm staying in Berlin, there was a little book next to my bed that was The Little Prince. 
All right. Yeah. And someone had written little notes because yeah. it was written as in yeah. English, but yeah. they had written to German words they didn't know, like engine or acquaintance. Yeah. yeah. And I was really thinking about how the little prince is kind of this take on grown-ups losing their creativity and grown-ups asking all the wrong kinds of questions. Like when you have a new friend, they want to know what do his parents do, but they don't ask you what games he likes to play and how he how he laughs. Yeah. And yeah. I really feel like this is almost like an underlying theme in so much of your writing. I love that you say that. I think it is something that I've learned. There's a book from Michael Ende. Uh, he's a children's book author, German, um, and he wrote, uh, for example, The Never Ending Story, that one you might know. Mm-hmm. And I think it was him that he said it was very, very dangerous to lose part of your childhood and to just become an adult, um, adult standing for somebody just functioning, really. Um, and I think I'm very good at keeping that childish thing. I mean, yesterday um, we went to like a party and it was by a lake and like my mom and my best friend texted in the group, please don't forget to bring a change in clothes for Anya. She will jump in the lake at some point. Uh, and I do think that other kinds of questions interest me than um, the usual, where do you go to, where have you been and how much money do you earn? <laughs> yeah. Your show, Street Philosophy, is almost like a day in the life and a different theme each episode, whether it's uh, recognizing fear, love. Can you describe your show, Street Philosophy? It's like about one topic, like love, and then I meet people that look on that topic very differently. Like you meet a nun that talks about her love to God and uh, then you meet these, I was with these three guys that all live together and they all are together in some way. And um, then I met this one guy whose dog died and I think he just like went to the grave like every day. And it's just very different topics and um, it's very personal. It's beautifully uh, produced. You've been working in Berlin. You have said that if you could put all your friends and like take them back home to Bavaria, you would go. What's kind of the fuel that you crave, like the pace that you set living in Berlin, living in the city? I think for me in Germany, there's no alternative to Berlin. I come here and I can breathe. It's for me the freest place on earth. And uh, where crazy is right next to completely normal and um, where the violence is still pretty low compared to other cities. Um It's a salad bowl of cultures and everything bounces together. It's has arts. It has all the things that everybody knows about Berlin. But more than that, it has this vibe of that everyone's okay to be here. Can we dive into the article that you published for the world that got this whirlwind going? Mm-hmm. I think it was in 2015 and it was called Why Feminism Disgusts Me. Yeah, that wasn't my choice. They just put that there. <laughs> What was your title for it? Um, Where Feminism Went Wrong. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Everything would have been Uh, I'm really, like, marinating in that. A lot different. They just put that up there, and I was like, you have to change it. And then I think at some point they did, but it was too late. Of course, the outrage was there. Um, Yeah. Not my choice of words. Obviously, I've like my mother is the most feministic person there is. My father accepted her name when they married, and she was always the one that like pushed through, <laughs> told me to speak my mind. So yeah, that would be ridiculous. Oh man! Yeah, literally, man. That was a man. <laughs> <laughs> Don't blame all Maybe of you. Maybe he's the but... one who also designed the airplane trash can that's this big. I think so. 
<laughs> We're coming for you. We, we are coming for you. Okay, so you you wrote an article in response to a bigger discussion. I'm wondering if maybe you can describe what prompted you to write the article and what it was about. Well, it was literally my initially my idea to have um, four columns on one page, and one uh, says why we need feminism. The other one says why we don't need feminism or why we do it in a different way, which was mine. And then one, uh, I don't care about feminism, and one, uh, what was the other one? I don't remember, some other opinion. So like in the newspaper, printed out, they were all on one page, nothing really big, big happened. But then they went out solo online with that uh, Why Feminism Disgusts Me headline, which was not mine, and then it spread it. And what I wanted to say basically was, I think I was an aggressive way of saying take what's yours and don't whine about it on Twitter because I've been to uni and we did have sexist profs and um, nobody would speak up. They would like tweet about it and be like, this is not fair, what's happening? I'm like, okay, well, don't you just raise your hand or just like respond in a witty way or in an angry way for that matter. Mm -hmm. You can do all that. And I just didn't like the softness that was wrapped around everything I didn't want this this fluffy feminism. So then I was awarded a, an award for that and it was a as a journalistic award for young writers. Yeah. Yeah, and I declined it publicly um stating that I do not stand behind that article and um <laughs> mostly that headline and uh, the way it was written. Um I mean that was a draft of 20 minutes that sparked such an outrage and it was the second article I ever wrote for an, a big newspaper anyhow. Um, so I declined and said this is not the work I want to be known for and that I'm a damn good writer, so dig into other articles, you find something to award me to. <laughs> you um, wrote a speech when you when you oh. declined the article. What were you hoping that people would really take away from that? Maybe that it's okay to change your mind and um, maybe that it's okay to like look back to your work and see if it still fits the day, if it still makes sense nowadays. It's always celebrated when people are always so straight on and so forward, but uh, always being the same in a world that is constantly changing doesn't make you the same. So you have to sometimes look at the context and then see if your opinions still fit those contexts. You can't just always have the same opinion on a certain issue all out your life. You have to check it sometimes and... Uh, Maybe that, maybe you can take away that. I really like that. I wonder if, is it easy for you to try the softness, the forgiveness on other writers or commentators? Yeah, I can, unless they're very, very successful and I'm very, very jealous. <laughs> <laughs> but I try, I try, yeah. Well, in terms of feminism, I, I think one of the opening lines of the article that you wrote was, I'm not a feminist, I'm an egoist. Yeah. I was wondering if you stand by that today. Well, I think it's a very American way to say. I mean, it's another way of Definitely. saying I just empowered uh, powered myself through and uh, I'm this badass bitch, which, of course, is bullshit. If, I, if it wasn't for my mom, the way I was raised, uh, of course, that wouldn't work. Um, but it does mean that I want to define myself. I don't like it when feminism, for example defines me as a victim in general because I can do that myself. If I feel like a victim, I can do that. I don't want feminism 
to tell me that I am a victim, just as much as feminists later on told me that, like, the big uh, bosses of the newspaper told me to write that article that could not have been my idea. It was a bullshit idea, but it was definitely my bullshit idea. <laughs> like, I want to stand by it. So, and and that frame of thinking, do you believe that, do you think that we can't take feminism for granted, we have to fight for it? Or do you think that we've gone past that and by using the word feminism we're um, shying away from really talking about equality, the, the core issue. I always struggle. Like, does it help to put labels on everything because people feel at home somewhere and uh, a definition might help them? I always think, maybe I think, maybe I think now, like as a vehicle for a future where like our grandkids say, hey, why the fuck would you call yourself demisexual or trans something? Um, why, why, why did that matter to you? Like, I think we need these labels now as a vehicle to get there, to get to a future where it really doesn't matter anymore, where gender is just mm. not as important anymore and where sexual orientation is not as important anymore and where you don't have, feel the need to be defined by that anymore. That's maybe the way I would look at it. Um, that, like a quota for women too. Maybe it is a vehicle we need now. Uh, it should definitely not be something that we have forever and that we have the need forever. And... Um, I would like for my future kids or grandkids to be able to pose new questions and not still chew on the ones we have now. The title of your novel, is it the right title in English, We Are Coming? Yeah, We Are Coming. I did not really get the sexual connotation until after it was published. And then I was like, yeah, that does sound kind of wrong. <laughs> I really didn't think about it. Then I just held it in my hands. I was like, fuck. <laughs> I mean, no, no one, literally no one in this book is coming. <laughs> Do not buy it if you're looking for that. Um, oh, I'm too scared to write about sex as long as my parents live. It's really weird. Just wait and hang in there for another, I hope, 50 years. I know. we get to that. See, it's definitely something I look forward to in age. Yeah, see? <laughs> but your your novel, what is your novel about? Well, it's basically, it's four people living in a city that might be Berlin. It's never really named. And they the four of them are in a relationship or trying to be. Um, they all are pretty much depressed in one way or the other. And they are very, very unhappy with themselves. And uh, I try to write a really funny book. And I think it doesn't make sense to write funny about funny things. And um, also you find uh, others and you make it easy f for others who... Uh, suffer severe conditions and like in my book I don't think they're that severe I think they're just um, millennials that are pretty much bored with life and they try to spice it up um, using drugs and doing weird stuff with that one child that they have um, doesn't talk she's five years old and she doesn't talk and nobody really knows why and it's also a story about suicide um, even though that doesn't really come up and up until the end but as you are Americans and my book is not yet to be translated I can spoil whatever I want. <laughs> yeah, you can. You know, you talk about using humor as a way to comment on things that are bigger than you. I think that you've said that we are the most well-protected and depressive of all generations. Yeah. I mean, maybe the two of them um, really have something to do with each other. I mean, if you don't have to worry about survival and um, how to get by, and uh, I mean, we're here in Germany, we have a pretty good social system, so it's not as easy to like land on the streets or die because you don't have health insurance. Um, therefore, yeah, we live in a very well protected society, and I mean, it's an old tale that everybody knows, but we do have the luxury of choice, 
And with every choice you take, um, you do not take a million other choices. And maybe that's just a pill to swallow and then you'll feel better about it. And uh, maybe I'm just talking. One of the things that I find really interesting is when doing research on you, so many people comment on your age and your gender rather than commenting on the writing. Yeah. However, the age and the gender also, it's like the sixth cycle where it's like it fuels your your writing and I think it gets you in front of a lot of people. However, I think it also clouds people from actually seeing the words. Well, it's actually a holy trinity of gender, age, and looks. Oh, right, um, that one. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's basically what haunted me the first years when I started writing. But then I just found out this really cool trick about the age thing. I just get older. Uh, so therefore, it does get less. Um, it's annoying nonetheless when like every book critic starts with, she is beautiful and young. And uh, you're like, yeah. And also, I like sweated tears uh, and blood to write this novel. So please do focus on that. You've written about how you spent a half-life under the same political leader. Yeah, yeah. Angela Merkel. Mm -hmm. I'll just paraphrase it, but it was like, I'm 13, I'm sitting at home eating dinner with my parents, Angela Merkel is chancellor. I fall in love, I graduate high school, Angela Merkel is chancellor. Like, I change my nail polish, like, someone dies, Angela Merkel is still in charge. Yeah, Angela Merkel was there from the time I started being interested in politics, and then stuff just sort of seemed to work. It wasn't anything where I felt like I can dig in, I can change it. I think the internet make, made a big impact on that. And for me also, Trump being elected and Brexit happening, that was the kind of thunderstorms I needed to wake up and to see that politics is not, and democracy is not a gift given to us. For, we can never take it for granted. It's something that we have to like fight for. And we have the tools now with the internet. We have the tools to connect and uh, we have the tools to shout out as we did in Me Too and other debates like that. If you say things, actions yeah. will follow. Well, I think this is one of the big things that we're getting into with our generation and with the internet is that you can write so much, you can say so many things, and yet it's not like you say it to someone's face or, you know, there can, especially uh, in the U.S. where free speech is so protected, you can be really volatile and hostile without any yeah. consequences. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that is a problem. Uh, not mine. <laughs> Though, But I do the same thing like when I have readings – I always, in the end, invite people to speak up and tell me why they hate me because I like to see a face for all the hate. It's so much nicer if it's in person. So I always ask, like, do you have any questions or any mean comments or do you want to tell me that my mom's ugly because that would be the chance to do it now on face? Um, nobody really ever dared to do that. Uh, that's why I sort of stopped really caring about what's written and what's really bad. Um, I mean, if it's just insults. I decided to only take hate seriously from the people I would take love seriously, which is people I would celebrate Christmas with. And everybody else can just like go back to their little cabin in the woods and crawl back to their <laughs> rabbit hole with Wi-Fi. <laughs> <laughs> I'm wondering if you can uh, uh, tell us how you how you do that. Um, how I do that? Mm -hmm. um, I think it's the same with like self-confidence. You don't get it for free. Most people don't. So in order to get it, I think you have to fake it. Once you fake it, you see how well it works and you sort of develop a natural sense of self-confidence. Um, I always, I can't emphasize this enough that you can't 
get rid of fears unless you go through them. It's just not possible. I know it's fucking uncomfortable. Um, I've lived that. Uh, I. It's a longer story. I don't know if you have room no, for yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Um, when I was 17, I took by uh, accident LSD and was not just a little LSD. It was for 17 people. It wasn't an orange bottle that I just sipped off and drank off from the fridge. And I didn't notice that something was written on it. And um, then I was like high for two days. It was terrible. Oh, my God. Terrible, terrible. I had no drugs, drug experiences. Um, so the aftermath was that I had panic attacks all the time, every day. Like the floor would just start shaking um, and it got worse and worse and I couldn't leave the house anymore um, I had to quit uni um, I couldn't go on public transportation anymore and then at some point it was so bad that uh, I told myself okay you have uh, two weeks and then you can kill yourself so I like picked up a bucket and went on the Munich subway and threw up because I was so scared oh and I had a ticket for the whole day and just rode around and around and around. And for the next day, I had a flight ticket to see a friend, which was like the worst where, that I could imagine. And it gradually just got better and better and better. And now I merely have it. Sometimes I do, but it's almost gone. And um, I mean, it does help that I have a mother that is very confident, that raised very confident daughters. Um, but if no one can help you, then you're the only one in charge. It's the only way it really is. Was there anyone else who was uh, helpful to you during this process? Well, yeah, I did have a boyfriend, but he was mostly smoking weed and laying in bed. So <laughs> I don't know how helpful that was. <laughs> um, so like an anchor. Was that your first time going to a facility? Well, yeah, I was in an emergency facility for three days, which was absolutely terrible, and I ran off. And what's it like? I mean, do they do they check you in and ask you like questions, like a questionnaire? Is it like... Going to a hospital? Oh, it's or? very different. The first time I just went to a hospital because I was just like, I don't know, crazy and I just felt terrible. And uh, my friend drove me there and it's just like, you just stay there for two weeks. It's just like, they drug you down basically and then oh. tell you to sleep. And um, the other one was a private hospital because the ones from the state, you have a waiting period and there was no waiting period that I had personally for me. So they checked me in there, bye-bye savings. <laughs> and... Um, that one was very thorough. You had like five therapy sessions a week. You had group therapy. You could um, volunteer and do sports. I found really, really the nicest people are there. I'm, I'm telling you, the crazy people are out there, not in there. <laughs> what is it, do you think, that you get either rest or being away from your routine? Or how is it that you begin to mentally heal? Well, for me, I think the first thing was getting a routine um, because I was just in the middle of a breakup and uh, I work from home so I can like basically lay in bed all day and do nothing but watch uh, Netflix for days and days and uh, masturbate to wildly weird porn and <laughs> eat chips and like waste your life. Then you have to work a little again, but I can do that from my bed too. Uh, millennials, get out of bed. I think that's the first step to get out of depression. I know it's comfy and we can do everything there and wireless is holy, but like, do get out of bed. Uh, do get a desk. Sit at that desk. But the routine does help. And then what really helped with the group sessions because it, there was so much my success came so fast. I was a student and then boom, I was like um, famous in this part of Germany and this intellectual scene. And uh, it took a toll on me for sure because it was just so fast. There was so much hate. It was so much outrage. I had no idea how to handle it all. And I just like pushed it down and I partied it through and then I worked more. And uh, 
And when I was there, it was just the people in group would just like not see me as the writer at all. Mm -hmm. um, and there was this fireman who was like, I could not do your job. And I'm like, you're a fucking firefighter. <laughs> you save lives and you can do that. No, I can deal with the pressure on the outside. I wouldn't do it. And it was like so healing to not hear either envy or hate, but just like compassion. And uh, from seeing a very, very different perspective on myself. I think that really helped um, even more than one once. Do you think that in a way that it validated the pressure that maybe it's you didn't want to admit that was like crushing? I think it is terrible that nowadays if you are a smart thinking woman or man and you express your thoughts in a public way, you also have to be extremely stable and you have to be able to deal with a lot of shit and you cannot just be soft. Even though nowadays is the time where we need softness more than ever. We need forgiveness more than ever. We need to be gentle more than ever. And uh, the internet does not create a healthy environment for that. And uh, I think it's saddening, it's depressing really how many I think great thoughts are not depressed because people are scared of reactions like that. And um, it didn't used to be like that. If you wrote for a newspaper in the 50s, you might get an angry letter. So what? I actually do appreciate when people actually write me letters, <laughs> put like some some effort in their hate um, instead of just telling me how did she That's going to be the second novel. Can I have some effort in this hate? <laughs> well, this is one of the, uh, I think, kind of wonderful way of your writing, of using vocabulary or using new ways to talk about old things. Um, and I think that your mix of like humor and ennui really gets to the heart of that. I do think that the only trick with that is that for humor, and, and it can be so easily misunderstood. So I Oh, want... it does all the time. It does all the time. Like people think you're serious when you're not. Uh, it's just a risk you have to take, really. And I mean, my humor is so dark and so weird that most people don't pick up on it. But I'm also like, maybe I'm a little narcissistic because I always imagine myself being the reader and cracking up over my jokes. And then there <laughs> yeah. are other people just looking at it in wild disgust, staring back at me and be like, <laughs> the fuck? <laughs> um, so yeah, it will definitely be misunderstood. That's probably why it's not for... Um, a really broad audience. I think it's younger people, younger intellectuals, students, women. Or do you write for somebody? No, I do not. I write for absolutely everyone because <laughs> it gives me money and I want to be very, very rich so I don't have to write anymore. <laughs> <laughs> One of my favorite things, and I could definitely tell this was humor, was why do people people ask me why I write, but I really want them to ask that ask me why I don't write. I'm yeah. so good at not writing. I can do it for days. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really good at not writing. So here's our lightning round. Mm -hmm. Favorite drink? Vodka soda. God, I'm basic. Smoker? Yes. Or, oh, occasional or e-cigarette? Yes. No. Yes. Smoker. Very hard. In Berlin, you can smoke inside uh, bars. There are bars for non-smokers too, but I am. I love smoking. I know how bad it is. I will stop when I'm 30, but I will enjoy every one of them up until then. 
Writing or not writing? Oh, not writing. No, the best thing is having written. That ah. is the absolute best. Writing sucks. Not writing sucks because you guilt yourself into writing, but having written is gold. Oof. One of the things that I was hoping you would, like piece of advice you would give me is that this, and maybe this is one of the reasons why I haven't gone after this kind of work before because I've been very hesitant to put my face or my voice really in such a huge public space. Yeah. I'm nervous about it. Well, that's perfectly okay. You can't be brave if you're not nervous before. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so be brave. Yeah, be brave. Yeah. I mean, that's really all all I can say. Be brave. And being brave is also um, recognizing weaknesses and then do it anyways. I think my my big word for my life would be anyways. I'm going to do it anyways. Maybe that word can help you too. But it is. I think it is important, sadly maybe nowadays, to have a face next, next to a column. No, you have to see who that is. I mean, everybody Googles their Tinder dates. You know it. Okay, I'm going to think about yeah, that. Yeah, be like the the CEO of the podcast world. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, looking at your work makes me feel like I can take maybe more by leaning into myself more and leaning into the show that I can also find that more personal side to share with the public because I haven't really wanted to do that. But Well, I'll try it. But if it, yeah. if it works for you that way, that's great. I don't want... Uh, uh... Only millennial narcissists like me roaming the news. So I'm very grateful for being for people being able to be more objective and more into facts. <laughs> Literature is probably not a bad thing. Sex or time with friends? Uh, I have to choose. I can't choose. Just today. I really love my friends. Just for today. But... <laughs> <laughs> I love you all and I'll get back to you after today. <laughs> I have a boyfriend waiting outside. <laughs> you can follow Ronia and her writing and musings at Sudelhelft on Twitter. That's S-U-D-E-L-H-E-F-T. The Women is a production of iHeartRadio and myself, your host, Rose Reed. Holly Fry is our executive producer. This episode was mixed by Adrian Lilly. Special thanks to Sabine Jansen, Nora Kipnis and the iHeart team, Gail Reed, and Odd One Audio Studios in Berlin. A very special thanks to Etienne Loya, who made this interview possible. Find a selfie of me and Ronia on Twitter and Instagram at TheWomenPod. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I was like trying to write a poem for you. Oh my god. <laughs> like a haiku. Well, this is this is where I started. Okay. I too would rather talk about sex than xenophobia. I too would rather lay around than be in the face of fascism. You give really good advice on this, Ronya. Oh my god. Do you always end up with your guests tearing up? <laughs> I mean, that's the goal. That's oh, the goal. I love it. Keep it. <laughs>